Get to the church blind! Get to the church blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plan. Hey, church planner, this is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones. Coming to you for Hardcore Church Planting. Peyton, introduce our guest. Well, okay, so this is one of my best friends, like on the planet, right? We're, we're separated by thousands of miles, but uh, I can remember seeing this dude in a precepts conference in the south of Wales. There was a bunch of guys in tweed jackets in a room learning to exposit better. And the first break came and it was like, we just looked across the room like, you don't belong here. <laughs> <laughs> we found each other. And on that day at that conference, I, I remember saying to him, hey, where have you been? the last seven, eight years, man, because I've been looking for a dude like you, man, like like someone who gets me, someone who understands. He's my brother from another mother. He's an author of multiple books, including The Hardcore, A Man's Greatest Challenge, Offensive, which is cross-centered ministry, and uh, written numerous tracks, um, an MC. Uh, massive preaching legend, his name, oh, uh, co-founder of New Breed, and currently the director of A29 Wales, uh, Di Hankey. Welcome to Hardcore Church Planning. What's happening? Uh, <laughs> bit of a grand intro there, but yeah, that's me. <laughs> 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 Hey, Daya, one of the things we always like to do when we start off the uh, Hardcore Church Planning podcast is for our audience who doesn't know you, tell us your story of how you came to faith. Okay, um, so in a nutshell, uh, raised in a Christian home, my, my parents were um, both faithful Christians. Um, I say were because my dad is still a faithful Christian. My mother's with Jesus, so it doesn't get more faithful Christian than that. Um, uh, so I was raised in a home with two uh, two parents who, who loved Jesus and uh, sought to raise me in a way uh, that you know I guess they felt they should. But they realized as well that I was a bit of a rebellious type. I didn't like authority. I didn't like being told what to do. Uh, and so they kind of raised me in a way which is very different to a lot of my friends who are Christians. Um, they basically raised me in a way that said, you can make your own decisions. You can make your own mistakes. But if you, if you, uh, if you do, you can live by the consequences of them. So by the time I got to sort of 11 or 12, they said, we're not going to make you come to church anymore. We're not going to make you do this, that or the other. We've laid out for you, you know, the way we think you should go, um, but now it's up to you. And so for, I guess, three or four years, that's exactly what I did. You know, I um, I chose to live a life which wasn't a Christian life. Uh, I, you know, I wasn't a Christian. Uh, I believed in God, but I didn't know him. And um, so I, w I, I had no real interest in that stuff. I found church boring and smelled a little bit stale. Um, and so I, I just wasn't interested. But there was a youth club that they ran on a Friday night. And uh, when it was raining and I, and I wasn't on the streets um, drinking cheap cider and chasing girls, um, I would go to the church youth club because it was dry. And, and so one Friday night I went to this youth club 
And a friend of mine invited me on a summer camp and I had no idea what that was. I didn't know what a summer camp was, but it was essentially, um, it, was, it was a summer uh, week-long outreach for teenagers. So he said, you know, you should come with me. They got sports. I was like, I don't care. They got sports around here. Um, he said, there's, there's girls. I said, okay, then I'll come uh, because I thought that was, that was a good reason to go. So my mum paid for me to go. And I genuinely wasn't in one of those I'm looking for God kind of things. I was I was just literally there on the pull is what I was. Um, but I also had a lot of self-hatred issues going on. Like I love being the center of attention when people were around, but I didn't like myself. Um, you know, when the day ended, I got a lot of very vivid memories of lying on my bed uh, at the end of a day, just hating myself, thinking back over some of the stupid things I'd done and said and the way I behaved and some of the real filthy things I'd been involved in. Um, and I always just remember just hating myself. And so by the age of 15, when I went on this summer camp, I wasn't looking for God, but I was definitely um, needing, needing some kind of breakthrough in my life because I didn't like myself at all. Um, I just remember this old dude um, called Owen Jones just faithfully preaching the Bible. You know, and this this camp man, this was like some crazy camp. It wasn't like the the sort of contemporary ones where um, you know people think, oh, these kids can't handle a lot of Jesus. I, I'm talking. You wake up and they're preaching, and then you have a coffee break and there's more preaching. And then you go and discuss the sermons, and then you go and do some something else which involved a book or a Bible. Then you had tea. Then you had more preaching. It was like huh. war the war Bible. I couldn't get away. But this dude was just faithfully explaining that like Jesus was the only way I could get rid of the guilt that um, was plaguing my life. And it was plaguing mm. me. And I remember by the Tuesday night, I just got on, you know, I just, I, I just got really serious. Um, and I said, Lord, um, if you love me and if you want me and if you died for me, then you can have me, um, you know, please forgive me. I, I really kind of, I, I remember 15 years old, man, crying tears. And it was kind of like two sorts of tears. I was crying because I was like facing up to some of the things I'd done. And that made me sad. But I also, it was also crying like because it genuinely felt like a funeral. It felt like I was saying goodbye to my old life. And I knew that in, I knew as soon as I got home, there was things I needed to do. There was a girl I needed to break up with. There was like friends I had to stay, you know, steer clear from. There's a lot of stuff I knew I just had to say goodbye to. And I, it was, I literally, it was like saying goodbye to the old me. Uh, and interestingly, I don't even know if Peyton knows this, but like my real name is David. That's like what I, you know, that's what I was born. But on that camp that week, there was these two uh, Welsh guys and they started calling me Di. Um, and so uh, because I became a Christian that week, uh, I just decided to stick with that. I just, just decided to stick with Di. And so uh, that's it's kind of like the name I adopted because it's the week I became a Christian. Um, I did not know that. And yeah, if, you, if you don't know, uh, which I'm guessing most Americans don't, Di is slang for David. It's kind of like a, a nickname. Yeah, yeah, man, that's it. So I remember crying. I'm sitting on this wall uh, with my dorm officer, just crying. And all I can tell you is, it literally, I felt the guilt leave my life. I felt it getting sucked off my shoulders, and I felt clean on the inside for the first time ever. And it was just the most incredible feeling, man. I felt liberated. I felt so liberated. Um, feel quite emotional talking about it now, to be honest. But yeah, that was like when I was 15. That was 24 years ago, and. By the grace of God, you know, that's that's who I still am, you know, and that's mm. and that's where I'm still at. I, I still love Jesus. I certainly haven't been a perfect Christian, but, you know, I, I haven't looked back, man. You know, he's, he's never let me down, and uh, it's been an adventure, that's for sure. Hmm. How did you get started in uh, church planting? Oof. Um, it's weird, like, you know, going back to when I became a Christian, it was like, the first thing, like, literally, I wanted to do when I got home was tell, was tell people about Jesus. I was like, 
although I'd sat through a lot of years of sermons, I was like, why did no one tell me this before? You know, people had, but all of a sudden it was like somebody to sort of press activate in my life. And I was just like, I got to tell other people about Jesus. I got to tell them about forgiveness. And so it just became the most natural thing to want to tell people. Um, but I also had a real heart, I guess, partly because of what I was like as, as a person and some of my kind of experiences, I guess. I just had a real heart for wanting to tell people that were outside of the church rather than inside the church. Um, I never, you know, I, I remember I went back to the church I was from and I, I got my Peyton a laugh because he knows what I'm like now. But I thought I had to buy like, you know, a silk tie and a waistcoat. Um, you know, and so I had this mad thing. I was like, on the one hand, I wanted to tell everyone about Jesus, but on the other hand, I became this proper nerdy, like kind of. Uh, I just became Ned Flanders, uh, at least visually. I did. I didn't have the mustache, um, but you know, silk tie and waistcoat and like nice boat shoes. Um, and so I had this crazy thing where I wanted to tell everyone about Jesus, but at the same time, I was kind of getting a little bit institutionalized as well. Um, but I think. I got introduced to this thing called detached youth work. I don't know if that translates across the pond. Did you do detached youth work over there? Mm-mm. Yeah, detached youth work is when basically rather than like running youth events in church buildings, you went out onto the streets and engaged with the young people on the streets um, on their kind of turf. And I got introduced to that a couple of years later um, and got introduced to skateboarding the same way. Uh, and that just kind of like, that, that really that really marks, I guess, the next 10 or so years of my life, just going out on my skateboard and just meeting with people on the streets. And I wasn't a church planter straight away, but I was all about engaging with people who were not in church. And, you know, because I'm a chopsy git, um, that, I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if git translates either. It just means a chopsy, like, you know, whatever. Um, and and because, chopsy means mouthy. Yeah, mouthy. Yeah, so I, I was just mouthy. I didn't. I didn't care who I talked to. I was. I, I was quite uh, shameless and unashamed of Jesus. Um, I just go and talk to whoever about it, uh, uh, about Jesus and about the gospel. Um, and I just got more and more passionate about people who were outside of the church, and I was about people who were inside the church. And to be honest with you, I finally got on with them better as well. So I kind of, you know, way back before I got rid of the kind of boat shoes and the silk tie, that that didn't last very long. Praise God. Um, you know, but you know, I just wanted to tell people who didn't know Jesus about Jesus, and I saw arrest that most of them are outside of the church. Um, so yeah, I got into youth work, got into DJing, got into just connecting with um, young people um, who like you know, were young offenders and that kind of stuff. Um, you, know, you were you were in a rough neighborhood. I mean, at, at one point you were in St. Melons. I remember uh, you were. I can't remember at what point. We, we we hadn't known each other that long, but I remember you telling me, yeah, you know, a bunch of youths like blew right past me. I opened my door. They blew right past me, ran and grabbed my stereo, everything, quicker than anything, and ran out. Yeah, like, I mean, one of the funniest weeks I had when I was in St. Melons. So like, I was in St. Melons as a youth worker working with young offenders and stuff. And I had just, I mean, I was really good mates with all the young offenders. But if people, if people <laughs> were visiting me who my mates didn't know, they got skanked, man. I mean, like there's this one, uh, there's one week, right? One week where I had three different people got robbed who came to visit me. Um, so the first one was was um, Mark Barnes, who was the editor of the Evangelical Magazine of Wales. He came to do an article on like what we were doing in St. Melons in broad daylight. <laughs> and he had his <laughs> he had he had his um, he had his, his window smashed, his mobile phone, and a few other things nicked from the car. 
And literally later that week, there was a guy called um, Bill Jenkins who was, he'd just come back as, as a missionary from Africa um, <laughs> to, to Highfields Church. And he came to visit me and sort of do a little pastoral visit, see how I was doing. Um, and they, the way they got his car, man, literally, they, they barreled the lock on his boot or his trunk, whatever you guys call it over there. Um, they, they took a knife. This is broad daylight now. They, they cut a, a square out of the parcel shelf. Must have been like, I don't know, six inches by six inches. Must have sent some six-year-old child crawling through, robbed his briefcase <laughs> and his Bible. Like they, they, they robbed his briefcase and his Bible, um, and so that was that was hilarious. And then the I, best I, was yeah, there, there was a dude from Swansea called John came over, um, and he said, "Oh, we're prayerfully considering planting a church in a similar neighbourhood in Swansea. We just want to know what it's like." And he came out of the house. This is the same week, you know, and uh, he had his car window smashed as well. and had to drive home in a, in a rainstorm with no window. So, uh, yeah, that was fun times, man. Yeah, you used to always say to me, hey, man, be careful, you know, when you come out and want your car to go. Never happened to me. So, you know, I'm, I'm just saying, you know. It's because uh, you look like you can, you can handle yourself, bro. That's why. I probably look like a local, man. Oh, he's moving up. He must be dealing. <laughs> But I was uh, that or your car was bunk. I can't remember which one it was. <laughs> no, my car was cool. I had a I had a Rob Four, man. Back then that was rock and roll. Yeah. But uh but yeah, man, I mean, you know, I, I think everywhere you went it was rough. Tell me t- tell us a little bit, because you you started doing MC and DJing in Cardiff and um you were you were in the clubs and you were skating. Tell us a little bit about and then and then there was the bus. So yeah. you gotta you gotta kinda unpack that a bit. First off, um, what is it about skate culture that just lends itself to evangelism? Good question. Um, I don't know. I think that like any kind of subculture, people engage um, and they kind of become a little, a little collective. And I think with with skating especially, you, you just spend a lot of time sitting around talking. Yeah. Um, either in between tricks or in between spots or like when you're traveling from one spot to another or whatever, like it's just a real sociable thing. And, um, you just, you just really get to know people like, you know, you establish really good friendships that way. Um, you know, and so I, I think there's just an openness. Uh, I remember this one time, like my, the church I was kind of connected with Highfields, they asked me to, uh, <laughs> this is brilliant. They asked me to sort of take a camera out and get from the kind of view from the streets what do people really think about life the universe and everything and so i took this camera out and i i engaged with this bunch of like skater boys um you know who i was friends with and one of them i think he was about 14 years old he's quite young he's, he's one of the younger guys and i had this camera i said i said uh, george tell us man like you know what do you think the point of life is and this 14 year old kid he looks at the camera and he goes life is like a thin sliver of light between two infinite darknesses <laughs> and um I just remember thinking, bro, where the heck did that come from? This is like some some young teenage kid, and he can come up with some kind of like philosophical nonsense like that. So, you know, we'd have all sorts of conversations on that level. But you just would when you you know when you're in any. I think any subgroup is the same. You kind of you chat, you relate, and you talk things through. And you know, I I don't claim to be like you know an amazing Christian or nothing, but. I, I've never had a problem laying my cards on the table and saying I'm about Jesus. And so it always ends up in a conversation like, you know, I'm always talking about Jesus. And so I guess people end up talking about either why they agree with me or why they vehemently disagree with me. But there wasn't, you know, there's there's not really a lot of space for bland, pointless conversations when you're good friends with people. Yeah, man, that's that's definitely been true. I mean, you're you're, you're unashamed in, in your faith and yet you're down to earth and natural. And I think 
you know, getting back to the whole question about skate culture, it's this idea that you're just hanging out with people. If we would hang out with people, but just be bold. I mean, that was Paul's deal, right? Hey, I'm yeah. going to go in the marketplace. I'm going to, I'm going to be around people all day doing what people do in that area, but pray for yeah. me for boldness that I would speak. And, 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 and that combination is, is unfair to the enemy. That's an unfair combination to the, the, the kingdom of darkness, man. If you get bold Christians just out there doing what other people are doing, then it, it doesn't matter if it's skateboarding, doesn't matter what it is. So that's awesome. Dude, tell us a little bit about the bus. Cause that, 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 that these are all your early days, man. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I knew you after this stuff, but, uh, but, but this was still cool stuff. I remember hearing stories about this stuff. Yeah. So like we, we got, um, we got dragged into like trying to convert a double decker bus into a mobile youth lounge. Like, cause it, you know, this was a rough neighborhood uh, where we were living and, you know, so people who set up youth clubs generally had their youth clubs smashed up. So, uh, so a youth club you could drive away was a pretty good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I remember I was working for this one church, uh, Highfields and, uh, my, my, my pastor called me into his office one day. He said, oh, I've had an email from this guy over in St. Mellon's, uh, and he's, he needs like he needs five young people, aged between eighteen and twenty-five, to get some funding to convert a double-decker bus into a youth lounge. And I was like, that sounds rad. Like, oh, you know. So, basically, this this pastor he he wanted to like he had the vision for the project, but he found some source of funding where you had to be age eighteen to twenty-five, and he didn't have any eighteen to twenty-five year olds in his church. So what he did is he just phoned all the local churches and said, can I borrow some of your eighteen to twenty-five year olds, score some cash, and then you can have them back. So um, I was one of five people that got that phone call. Uh, another one, ironically, was the uh, the girl I ended up marrying, Michelle. That's how we met. Was um, you know she got the same phone call through her dad, who was, a, who was her pastor, and we ended up sat on a sofa next to each other um, for the first time as part of this youth project. And yeah, we we converted this one bus. It was an absolute cronk. Um, does that translate? Is a is a rubbish bus. <laughs> like. This thing kept breaking down, uh, and we we I think we had about seven and a half thousand pounds that's not a lot of money like um to convert it so we, we built the whole thing out of mdf just put some record decks on there um there's actually a video of the original bus online man like if you if you want to link to it at some point like you okay know, you, send, send me the link we'll put it in the yeah, notes you can show people that like you know you'll see how, how um how crazy it was we used to pack it full of young people we had so many kids off the estate the police loved it you know the kids loved it the parents loved the kid loved it it was a it was one of the most popular things think, that, that ever happened on that estate um, and then we, you know, but that, that bus died. It was just, you know, it was completely dead. It, it died and got raised back to life so many times. You call it the Lazarus. But in the end, um, <laughs> you know, just just like Lazarus, he went the way of all buses. And um, you know, so we had to get another one. So we raised some serious um, Wonga for the for the for the next one. And I think we raised about thirty grand for the next one. Wonga's money. Yeah, yeah, Wonga's <laughs> money. Um, green man, it's just green. Uh, not the sort you smoke. I'm talking about the the sort you spin. Um, <laughs> yeah, Yosemite yeah, so, Sam when he was he was he was wishing in his genie. Oh, I, I got too much of that green stuff. <laughs> yeah, man, cash money. Anyway, so we raised a lot of money for the second one, and that was an awesome bus. But the original one, man, like check out the link. It's, it's it was good fun. <laughs> so uh, that's cool. Hey, our guest is Die Hanky. Um, you can follow Die's excellent blog at Sanctified Rant. Dot com. That's sanctifiedrant.com. So, Di, um, you and I hooked up, and uh, it was funny. We we got into church planning together 
Um, we were really kind of tag teaming it. And it, it, we, I remember at one point I was like, Hey, I'll take the West part of the country. You take the East part of the country and let's start training guys up because Wales really, other than a guy named Ian who had started up in the coal barn, coal, no, not, that was you. Sorry. The uh, coal exchange in, um, Cardiff docks. There, there really wasn't a lot going on in church plan. I mean, it kind of really been decades since you had heard anything. And A29 turned up at, at, and, and ran a conference, and you and I got friendly uh, with them, and one thing led to another. But, but prior to that, you and I were, you know, I remember it was kind of like we, we started this thing called New Breed, and uh, we wanted to train guys to plant churches because church planters are scared. And I remember you and I kind of, we came up with a logo and the name, and there was only me and yours church in it. And we're like, two punks and a logo, man. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about your church plant there um, in Trevethan. Yeah. All right. So the truth be told, bro, you were a lot more kind of clued up on that stuff. So you say we both had a desire to train guys up the church plant. That's cobblers. You had that desire. I would, I didn't know what I was doing. I certainly wasn't thinking strategically. Um, so I, I almost ended up planting a church by accident. Genuinely, I, there was an estate that the Lord had laid on my heart and I knew it needed, you know, a gospel witness there. So I, I felt the Lord saying this place needs, needs the gospel to be preached there, but there wasn't a church on the estate. And so I was like, well, I guess this is on the, a different estate now, an estate called Trevethin, um, in the Welsh valleys. And so, I just felt, well, I, I could go and preach the gospel there, but then where am I going to plug them into? There's no church to plug them into, um, which, you know, is going to be able to handle them. You know, so I kind of thought, well, I guess I better plant the church then. Like, so that was a, that was as strategic as it got. Um, I think it's only now, literally nine years later, that I'm starting to think actually training is really important. Um, but I, there was no strategy from my end at all. People people came and got involved because they, you know, they believed in the vision and it looked quite exciting. And, you know, some of my closest friends came and helped out and, uh, you know, carried on in the ministry, which is encouraging. So I guess they kind of got trained by accident. Um, but a lot of the training, which I guess I've done, apart from the, uh, the Portalbrook course we ran a couple of years ago, um, was training that was caught, not taught. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's like, let's just go and preach a gospel together. And when you want to go and do it yourself, crack on. That was kind of, that was much more the approach. And so there's a guy called Ben Franks, who's a you know, really good friend of mine. Um, him and his wife came and helped us. Uh, rocket for several rocket years. scientist. Yeah, man. Yeah, legend. <laughs> and, and a great jazz pianist as well. Um, you know, so like Ben and Ben and Lois were with us for I think it's three or four years, but we always knew they were going to go and plant a church in, in another part of the valleys. And, you know, it's amazing. Like they did, you know, they were, they, they're young, they, they were young then, they're still young now and went to their church on Sunday, man. They had their, their little baby was, um, uh, they, they had a little Thanksgiving service for their, for their, um, for their son. And, uh, it was just amazing to see like, you know, the way the Lord has used them. And that's encouraging, you know, just to see that the Lord has used what we did as a means of kind of encouraging and stuff. But it wasn't strategic, mate. It was like mm. it was shambolic, but God is gracious. That's awesome, man. And, um, to, you know, Trevathan is, you know, for those of you who don't know, when Dice says Welsh Valleys, he means basically what happened was there was a, an explosion during uh, economic explosion in, in, in one sense towards the, the owners of the mines. Coal was king in the Victorian uh, empire. So the, it, it really was the backbone of it. That was the economy. It was, it was coal. That, yeah. that was like gasoline. Well, well Wales, the, Welsh valleys, or the, the Welsh valleys almost certainly was the fuel for the industrial revolution. Uh, absolutely. You know, if, the, if the Welsh anthracite coal wasn't available, then, you know, 
they, they couldn't have smelted the iron and the Industrial Revolution wouldn't have happened. So, you know, the Welsh Valleys was a very important part of like Western European history. And, and so what happened was everybody migrated there and there was this population explosion. They lived in row houses. You've, you've seen them probably in pictures, um, maybe films, but they, people were packed. It was this, this concentration of people around the coal industry, which is very dangerous. They lived in poor conditions. Um, they, they, they often were born there, died there, um, never knew anything else, died young. And then suddenly, you know, none of them got any richer off of it. It was just the mine owners. Um, if like there was a guy named Lord Butte who was like the Bill Gates of his day, he owned a lot of that land and just became the world's richest man. And so anyways, all the workers, you know, they were just, it was like, it was like a human pigsty, man. And, uh, just everything that goes with poverty and, um, so, so there's these communities called Welsh Valleys that when the industry died, the people were poor, they didn't move. And so there's these, um, they're almost like ghettos, you know, um, in, in the Welsh Valleys. They're, they're, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Di, cause I don't want to get, you know, I'm an American talking about, it. I lived there, but, um, if I've got it wrong, correct me. But, um, but the, the idea is that these are kind of like the forsaken places of Wales. First time I ever called a group of people together and said, look, we need to be strategic about church planning. Gosh, that was like in, I think 2005, um, that, that we had that meeting and, uh, die. He, he, everybody else was clueless and dies like, Hey, I'm all for this, but let's stop going to the middle class areas. We have to go to the Welsh valleys. And you didn't know you're going to plant then at that time. And the, and the, no. but that was your passion. Um, so, so that's where you went. Tell us a little bit. Cause I mean, Trevethan is really quite a story. I mean, you had a church planting team of how many? <laughs> well, there, I mean, <laughs> again, this is why I wasn't strategic, man. Like, there's me, my wife, my one-year-old daughter, and my dog, who was a pit bull. Um, so, like, that was literally it. You know, we didn't have anyone else, and we didn't want anyone else, really. Um, we just wanted to sort of pray and see what happened. And so, um, you know, we had... Um, when when yeah. you say your dog was a pit bull, people yeah. needed to know this was... Uh, what kind of pit bull was he? He's the giant one, the one for like home security, like well, better so than a gun. Pitbull, so Pitbull was his predominant breed. His father was, I think it was um, three quarter Pitbull and a quarter, um, what was it? Uh, and a quarter Bull Mastiff. No. Bull Mastiff. Yeah. No, no. It was, no it, was, it was three quarter Pitbull and a quarter Rottweiler. And the mother was a half Ridgeback, half Bull Mastiff. Dude, so, um, this dog was the biggest dog I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it was a, he was a if he stood up on his hind legs, he would easily be taller than any of us. <laughs> <laughs> he was a, he was incredible, wasn't he? Yeah. So like, but that was it, man. He, so he was our security. My, my one year old daughter was our Sunday school. I was the preacher, and my wife was the worship leader. So we kind of had a team, but you know, it wasn't it wasn't exactly impressive. Um, yeah, we just started with that, man. I remember for five months we just. We decided we're here to establish a place of worship on this estate. And so if no one else is going to join us, we're going to just get into the habit of doing what we came here to do. So we started like doing a, a family church service for, um, every single Sunday for five months from September mm. um, 2007 to uh, February 2008. And we'd have literally, I'd, uh, we'd sing, we'd pray. I'd preach a 45-minute sermon to my wife and my one-year-old. Um, and we just did it to get in the habit of it um, because we just, we said that that's what we've come to do. So we did. It was mad. And it, and it took about five months for anybody else to join us, but in, eventually they did. That's awesome. And uh, our, there's a there's a time where things kind of broke. I remember Lord really used your wife, Michelle, um, 
one morning. Do you want to tell a little bit about that Sunday morning? I can't remember what you're talking about, bro. I oh, to be honest. Oh, like sorry. That. You're uh <laughs> I remember it clear as day. If you get me started, I mean I mean, to be to be fair, the Lord used my wife and you know, amazingly on a in, in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, certainly the way that I think he really used her um with the church plant was um she was just amazing at taking our, our daughter to the different um, groups and the different, you know, mum and toddler groups that were happening in the community and just meeting mums and just being honest with, about, her, you know, who she was and where she was at. And certainly the first few people that we, we saw came to faith uh, were some of the mums that she met in those groups. And, you know, the first people we baptised were, were mums from those groups as well. So, um, yeah, she was used incredibly. But what, what, was that, what, what were you thinking about that Sunday thing? There was a Sunday morning where you and um... – I think Michelle had shared her testimony. It was like the Holy Spirit just dropped a bomb in that place. You remember that? She shared her testimony about how she had uh, been, you know, uh, on the antidepressants. And she shared, I mean, it was real personal stuff that she shared. And it just identified so many of the women in that room identified him, I believe. Yeah, yeah, for, for real. And I, that's one of the amazing things. And I guess one of the amazing things of what the gospel does, like, you know, my wife's testimony is that she was, you know, she was literally rescued from severe clinical depression. Um, but when God rescues us from, from, from crappy stuff, oftentimes he can then use us uh, in sharing, you know, our, those experiences to em- you know, empathizing with, with other people and being able to relate to them in ways that those who haven't gone through those things can't um and one of the crazy things about the welsh valleys i don't know i don't know if you've heard this statistic before but um it's the antidepress that the, the welsh valleys is is absolutely the antidepressant uh capital of the uk um the last the last figures that i saw um the area where we were in uh, the, the valley called uh, torvine or the eastern valley um 11 of all prescriptions from the doctors were for antidepressants um you know it's it's incredible um, the the amount of depression that you know that, that there is in that valley and all the stuff which that leads to as well. And the Lord really used my wife and her testimony and, and, con- and continues to do so. To be honest with you, to just speak about you know in, in very honest terms about what that felt like, what that was like, but also how Jesus and you know was was able to set her free from that. And she's she's now a free woman. So cool, dude. And and I know that the Lord really used that. It's amazing when you're transparent. This has been Die Hanky, uh, author of multiple books. The hardcore book for men has gotten glowing reviews. One thing that you can know about Die is whatever he writes, it's going to be about Jesus. And it's going to be about the cross. I owe a lot of my writing style to this guy, man. This guy is... Uh, he is an excellent author. Um, he's written children's books. And my favorite thing about Die, because he's an MC and a, and a rapper DJ, uh, he, he, when he when he tells his book, there's videos. His, his latest children's book is called Eric Says Sorry. And if you want to hear a rapper do a children's book around the gospel, check that out. Usually you can go to thegoodbookcompany.com. You should be able to find his stuff on Amazon. Um, but any one of his books you could pick up is going to be just a goldmine of gospel-centered goodness. So uh, with That's that, <laughs> and uh, with that, be sure to check out Die and sign up to his blog, sanctifiedrant.com. You know, Di, before we let you go, there's one final question that we ask all of our guests. It's the question, quite frankly, that uh, I wait for our entire interview, and I think most of our listeners wait for until the end. And here it is. 
if you were to get into a physical fist fight with Steve Timmis, who would win? <laughs> <laughs> Don't go there, man. I could get in trouble for this one. <laughs> we were going to say Driscoll, you know, because he likes a good scrap up. But, you know, he's he's retired these days. So we, we, we thought, well, maybe Steve. But, uh, yeah. Oh, Driscoll would just bury me with all those books he bought, man. <laughs> Yes, yes. And if, uh, okay, what if you had superpowers? If Steve Timmis had superpowers and you had superpowers? Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure be? that Steve Timmis can use the force because I don't know if you've ever clocked this before, but have you ever seen Steve Timmis and Count Dooku in the same room together? <laughs> <laughs> All I know is that Steve would be lethal with mind bullets. That guy is crazy smart. That's, now, that's... listen, Steve, right, although he can sometimes present as, a, as an English gent, He's from you know he's from a pretty pretty mean background, man. I reckon Steve can handle himself. I reckon he's a ninja, honestly. I I genuinely don't fancy my chances against Steve Timmons, especially with <laughs> my arthritic ankles. Um, yeah, that's I reckon I, I reckon I could take him in a rap battle. Um, oh, now that's something I would love to see is the die hanky Steve Timmons rap off. Right, Let's. This point, I reckon he pummel me, mate. Seriously. Epic rap battles of church planning. Now that would be something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one other thing, guys, before we go, and I'm going to let Arnold sign us out here. Um, don't forget to check out our other podcast, which is Church Planner Magazine podcast. And uh, of course, while you're at it, check out Church Planner Magazine. It's in the uh, in the app store. And uh, guys, this has been uh, Die Hanky. Google him by putting in buzzin, no G, and uh, watch his super fine video on there. And uh, from uh, one of my best mates in the world. It's been great having you die. And uh, Arnold, sign us out. Remember, if you are called to church planting, go hardcore or go home. You've been listening to Hardcore Church Planting. Hardcore Church Planting has been brought to you by the Church Planner Podcast and the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.